This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Ontario government is offering its public servants contract extensions with a 7.5% raise over four years. If this is ratified, could possibly avoid bargaining before the next election. Uh, this follows the offerings uh, teachers and education workers of a two-year extension and uh, 4% raises as well. To talk more about all of this, Warren Smokey Thomas is with us, president of OPSU, and he is with us now. Hello, Smokey. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks, Scott. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, Smokey, did you know you were going to get an offer like this at this time? No, it came, uh, well, it came out of the blue, but I wouldn't say I'm totally shocked, just given the education sectors, but I, I, I guess what, I was a bit surprised that they would extend it to the direct public service. So, well, I, you know, I mean, it didn't fall off my chair or anything, but mm-hmm. uh, it came as a bit of a surprise because contract doesn't end at the end of December either, so... Uh, now, we had just getting in the process of electing bargaining teams and talking to the government about where we're going to bargain, what hotels, that sort of stuff, right? But uh, uh, they just put an offer on the table, and I'm uh, morally and uh, legally duty-bound to take it to the members to let them decide. It's uh, They get to vote on it. They'll either take it or they won't. So it's uh, up to them. Does this alter the the process at all or change the process for you guys? If it's ratified, then there's no bargaining. Mm-hmm. Um, we would uh, uh, it would just roll the contract over, and then uh, if it's not ratified, then there, we would just start commence bargaining when whenever that was going to be scheduled, probably September October. Now there's a two two actually there's a new collective agreement here is for the for a corrections unit, so it's the provincial jails, right. uh, the provincial jails, everybody inside the walls, and then what we call the unified bargaining, which is the rest of the public service that now these folks work directly for the government their paychecks come from the government so corrections if it's ratified they still need to go to the table because of the division of the contract they have some work to do there right uh, but they so but the gen the basics of their contract if they accept it would be ratified they would be able to take uh, requests for special wage increases for officers and for nurses and stuff to uh, an arbitrator or to try to mediate it, and then if not, have an arbitrator rule on it. Uh, the public may remember or may not remember. They're like $20,000 a year behind police officers, firefighters, and that sort of thing. So they've been trying to play catch-up for the last number of years. So but it, so if they ratify it too, though, uh, the, uh, uh, it would take a whole lot of the stuff off the table. They just bargain the special cases. So your thoughts on this deal? Well, I... I, I it's up to the members to accept or reject, but it's uh, it's not an outrageous offer by any stretch of the imagination. But it would provide four years of peace and quiet for the members and as well as the government. And this bargaining unit, you know, back in the early nineties, there was ninety, ninety. Uh, around 90,000, 96,000 workers in the directly for the government. We're now down to 36,000. So that's, you know, so they've been cut and had zeros and concessions and austerity ever since the early 90s, all through Mike Harris, Dalton McGinney, Kathleen Wynne. So I I think the members may breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, I'm not getting, I have a few people that are upset with it, that they don't want to do it, but, uh, but it's just a very few. And again, we'll offer information sessions tonight, tomorrow night, Thursday night on a thing called a new, a cool new technology called Tele Town Hall, and then Friday at lunch, and then they'll vote over three days next week. Now, the fact that uh, the government did come early with this offer, uh, how do you think that will be accepted, or, or are people questioning why this is happening now? 
Well, a few people are, but most people don't actually care what the motivation is. They just care that they got an offer to vote on. Sure. I've, I've been asked this question by a few people, and, and really boil it all right down, whatever the government's motivation is, is secondary to the fact that now my members have something to vote on. Like, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going to put it before them so they can have their say. Uh, all the speculation is, you know, they want all this bargaining concluded before next, uh, you know, for the next provincial election. And there's probably something to that. The premier, I've heard her interviewed on the radio, say, you know, it's got nothing to do with it. Now they have some money. They want to work, you know, just get some labor peace and have people move on. Now the premier does call us her labor partners. Well, we're not partners. I don't like that term. We're not partners at all. We're most days we're adversaries. So, but, uh, so. Except around election time, I guess. <laughs> Well, no, I, no, 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 no. That's I I'd really I, I want to correct that public okay. misconception. Go ahead. I, I am the only labor leader that did not support the premier's budget. Right? Remember, she ran mm-hmm. on it was the most yep. progressive budget. I read the darn thing. There were a lot of cuts in there, and I didn't support it. And my union's nonpartisan. We're, we're not like Service Employees International, firefighters or teachers. We don't affiliate to any political party. They, you know, they're all liberal. And uh, I, we don't affiliate to any political party. I don't have a card in my pocket. I tell you something, there's something about all three parties. Some things I like, some things I don't like. There's great people in the, all three parties, but I'm nonpartisan. My first and primary job is to represent the interest of OPSIO members and, and, and try and take their interest and match them up with public interest, which they do just about daily, right, because we work for the public. And, uh, and uh, so we're nonpartisan. I, I won't ever support a political party. In 2014, two weeks in, somebody asked me, a reporter asked me at a scrum, uh, said, uh, what, what platform do you think best fits for public sector workers? I said, well, none of them are perfect. Some of them are horrible. Two of them are, one's real bad, one's bad, and the NDP one's you know, mediocre. So I guess for public service workers, the NDP platform is the least egregious. Uh, so there wasn't anything in that last election, and there wasn't a whole lot from anybody that I liked. So. Why, uh, you know, I think you touched on something very important here, Smokey, and I, I think that's why you're miles ahead of the others, in that you're very open and honest about what you just said, whereas the others, there seems to be political motivation. Why is that? Because to me, at this point, the attitude that you have is the only way to take unions ahead and forward. The rest seem to be wallowing in, in decades past. How, how come you figured it out they haven't? And, and I, that's a bad that's a bad way to put it in a, in a, in a terrible well, position to put you yeah, in. But no, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, one labor leader in particular, I asked Charlene Stewart why that they why they support the liberals. She said because we get everything we want. She's president of Service Employees International Union. Her chief of negotiations is uh, like a, her one of her senior staffers is president of the Liberal Party of Ontario. And I don't, I, I don't like that. There's other unions directly affiliate to the NDP, and that's all their choices. But I think the problem in the labor movement today is that we're mixing politics with trade unionism. Yeah. Now we need to. I've always held the view ever since I got involved in the union back in the mid '80s, we should be political as hell, but not partisan. Mm. So, in other words. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, we, I we, do, exactly. We yeah. put forward ideas, mm-hmm. we put forward our agenda, we fight for our members, and in my case, I do fight for the public good, because I, I worked all my adult life in a psychiatric hospital. My members all work for you know people who need people to help them out in life. Uh, we do policy work, so I do advocate on social issues, I do advocate on all kinds of issues, and, and those ideas will come from my members, so... 
I like the way we do it. I like the way my union does it. Uh, other unions, I guess they're entitled to do it any way they like. I just happen to not agree with them. Well said. Thank you, Smokey. Warren Smokey Thomas has been with us, president of OPSU. Oh, how are things going with the LCBO? Give us an update on that. Well, uh, we're again, we want to bargain a contract, not a strike. I take heart in the Premier's public comments on radio and interviews that she expects the LCBO management to behave the way that she she behaves allegedly uh, in that uh, you know in the change in workplaces review there's it's, they want to address uh, precarious work which is an issue in the LCBO they want to uh, address things like workers having shifts canceled on short notice or no notice that's an issue in the LCBO and equal pay for equal work and that is an issue in the LCBO because we won that already in the LCBO my union won that equal pay for equal work for you know so if you're doing the exact same work yeah you're full-time or part-time, you should get equal pay. So I'm happy to hear the Premier saying that the LCBO management should be, be a model employer like she wants to be, and then I hope that translates to the bargaining table. They're there. They're, they're at the table, I suppose, beating each up all day, every day here. There's a conciliator involved now. Uh, for the public, I'd say each time we bargain in this contract, the employer makes us get a strike vote, takes us right to the 11th hour, then yeah. they drop those one or two totally inappropriate demands that they know the members nobody would ever accept they know nobody would ever accept they take them off the table and we get a deal so i got my fingers crossed uh, you know it shouldn't doesn't have to be that way but i got my fingers crossed we can get a deal and now with the premier putting a little pressure on them to behave themselves that's on the management side then i'm i'm hoping we can get a deal and i'd say this public these are decent jobs they're not perfect jobs uh, some workers in the lcbo make twelve dollars and ninety cents an hour uh, you know, uh, the LCBO brags that people, you know, well, half the part-timers are getting a 1,000 hours a year. Yeah, well, that's half-time. Can you live on a half-time salary? And the other half are getting less than a 1,000, and 82% of the workforce is part-time. That's hardly anything to be proud of. And, and when the wages in the LCBO, you know, people in the LCBO, you could work for free and it would not reduce the price of alcohol, or you could double their wages, and it would not increase the price of alcohol. Wages are simply a round-up number in the LCBO. Sounds like a big number in and of itself, but there's so much money involved here that the workforce, they they, they should be a model employer, and I, I call it a colossal failure of management to be reasonable with people and their shift schedules and how they work making them work alone in dangerous situations at night. So it used to be two employees in a store. Now they're saying, well, you can just run it with one. And then, so are you going to turn away a drunk that's getting belligerent because you won't sell him a bottle of, bottle of alcohol at uh, 8.30 at night when he's drunk and nobody around to protect you? Well, call 911. Oh, I'm sorry, a lot can happen. You know, the police respond very quickly. But so there's health and safety issues there. So anyway, to public, if you're going to stock up, I'd say, please, go to the LCBO, go early. And say to those LCBO workers, and I heard some people interviewed yesterday on radio, you know what, I like them workers in there. And, and the one thing they like is that they can ask advice, you know, what would I serve with this meal, that meal. And, uh, you know what, in my town, I know them, they're good people, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, maybe come out, let's, as workers, let's support each other and maybe support those workers. And I'm sure that your turn will come that you'll want those workers to support you. Warren Smokey Thomas has been with us, president of OPSU. Warren, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, I appreciate your interest. I, I, I want to thank you. Thank you. 1222, let's bring in Peter Grant, uh, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is on the line with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Great, thanks. Thank you for taking the time. Peter, your thoughts on uh, Premier Wynne getting rid of all these, uh, you know, uh, loose ends before the election. Uh, Smokey Thomas, surprised that they made the offer to OPSU. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's a government that's done very well with public sector workers and wanted to make sure that there wouldn't be any question ahead of the next election, uh, you know, of a potential strike or uh, labor disputes. Uh, but I think what's kind of behind this is probably also pretty good and shrewd negotiating on the part of uh, the Premier. I mean, the, the offer that uh, has been put out is going to be pretty much the rate of inflation, at least given our current rate of inflation. So it's, I mean, it's equivalent pretty much to a uh, a wage freeze in terms of people's, uh, uh, you know, what their real purchasing power is out of that wage. And this is after a few years when OPSU members got less than inflationary increases. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in that sense, uh, Wynne probably was able to say, well, you'd rather have a deal for four years now than have this drag out, not have something done by the time of the election, and having to negotiate quite possibly with Patrick Brown. Uh, I think on that basis, she was able to get them to really uh, come in pretty much as an inflation. So as long as, uh, you know, Ontario's economy continues to grow at above the rate of inflation, uh, the sort of actual cost of public sector salaries will decline as a share of the economy. And so that's kind of key to her strategy in, in keeping Ontario's budget at or near balance. So a fair, a fair deal for Ontarians. Uh, any reason for opposition to be skeptical of this? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, uh, some people don't like it when public sector workers get any kind of increase in salaries. Uh, I mean, for a long time, uh, no one was getting raises. And so the public sector workers, because they were able to have uh, small raises, kind of see themselves, uh, uh, you know, see that as a positive situation. Uh, I suppose if you're an OPSU member, you might say, well, how is it that, you know, before we really got our formal bargaining process underway, uh, did we agree to a deal which actually is going to keep us pretty much where we're at? So the, the fact that, uh, you know, we uh, ate a, a loss in purchasing power since 2014 isn't being really compensated in this deal. You know, what's the rush to sign this? And certainly the correctional officers, I think, have taken that approach to date, uh, suggesting to their members that they reject the deal. So, uh, you know, I, I think probably there will be some people who are unhappy with it, but certainly uh, for Kathleen Wynne, uh, it's probably a win in terms of getting uh, the public sector employees to sign on for four years to a deal that's not going to put much pressure on the Ontario budget. Uh, so, well, uh, does do, uh, any hay here for opposition? I mean, at the end of the day, it sounds like a fair deal for everyone. No? Well, I mean, you know, wages, what's fair is going to always be contested. I think yeah. you probably feel you deserve to be paid more. Your employer sure. probably wants you to pay less. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, for you know, some off-few members, it will be an issue. I suspect Andrea Horvath may come out and say to the public sector unions, well, you're, you'd prefer win to Brown and you're willing to cut these deals, but you know, what are you letting yourself get pushed into uh, after uh, there's been a decline in the purchasing power of, of public servants since you know, about 2010-2011? Uh, but I don't think there's a whole lot of hay to be gained there, and uh, really, I think that would be done kind of quietly because Andrea Horvath, I think, is also trying to portray herself as someone who would not break the bank in that manner. I mean, I'm sure uh, Patrick Brown will uh, take the headline number of 7.5% uh, raise, right? But that's over four years, so yeah. certainly that's like 1.8, 1.9. But uh, we know in politics, uh, you don't have to get into the details, and you'll see if he says who's getting 7.5%. Uh, a lot of people will say, well, I'm not getting that next year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or even are the OPSU members, but uh, yeah. maybe a way to... Uh, I mean, I think it's probably paying for the Conservative Party to get the sense that the Liberal Party is in and cutting uh, favorable deals with uh, public sector unions. I'm sure he'll come back with some of the compensation that was paid to the teachers' unions in the, the last agreement uh, to, again, kind of make the case that the, the Liberals are in too, 
too close with the public sector unions. Uh, do you think that the teachers got a better deal than what these guys are getting? Uh, I think they're getting pretty similar deals when all is said and done. Uh, the teachers, I think, did a bit better than OPSU uh, in the previous round of negotiations, and so I think they've been able to sustain their uh, their standard of living, whereas the OPSU members took a slight cut. Peter Grant has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A Pentagon chief says that North Korea is the biggest threat to U.S. security at this time. Uh, what about us in Canada? And is the secret weapon behind all of this Dennis Rodman? How does that change the discussion? Or does it? Uh, when not many people are having uh, conversations with Kim Jong-un, it seems that Dennis is. Uh, let's bring in Marius Grinius, a former Canadian ambassador to Vietnam, North and South Korea, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, and with us now. Hello, Marius. How are you today? Not too bad at all, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate appreciate this. Uh, the Pentagon uh, declares North Korea the new top threat to U.S. security. Your thoughts on that? Well, it, it was interesting uh, when uh, the U.S. Uh, Defense uh, Secretary Jim Mattis did, as you said, uh, confirm that uh, Russia is no longer threat number one and has been uh, pushed out of that spot by North Korea. And he did uh, say that uh, the regime's North Korea's nuclear weapons program, clear and present danger to all, and also that uh, that uh, the most quote the most urgent and dangerous threat to peace and security is North Korea, and uh, yes, uh, the uh, the Trump uh, uh, government uh, first of all was not uh, happy with uh, uh, President Obama's uh, approach, uh, which was called strategic patience, and uh, they did a review of uh, what U.S. policy should be and came up with something that they nicknamed maximum pressure and engagement, which to this point, quite frankly, just kind of looks like strategic patience part two, because Hmm. very few people, nobody really knows what to do with North Korea as it continues to build, uh, to test its, uh, particularly its missiles. They, they haven't, uh, they haven't done a nuclear uh, explosive test this year so far, but that's it. Uh, most thought for the longest time North Korea was just a thorn in everyone's side. What's changed? Why has this ramped up recently? Well, in, in actual fact, I, I think the, um, it has been a kind of a constant, regular ramping up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've now had, since 2006, uh, five nuclear, uh, underground nuclear tests uh, by North Korea. The only uh, country uh, in this century that uh, has been uh, testing nuclear weapons. Uh, equally important, they have been increasing, improving through lots of missile tests, uh, 26 just last year, a number of them already this year. And uh, that, that means that missiles can go further, more accurately. And, of course, Kim Jong-un has said that, uh, that they're working on a, an intercontinental ballistic missile that will hit uh, the United States. 
is China in all of this? You know, some would, some have said in the past that you know, if China wanted to take care of this, they could extinguish this problem, no problem. Uh, why are they not more aggressively monitoring, or maybe they are, what's going on and, and leaning on them? There, there's um, a, a series of uh, considerations by uh, China. Uh, before, the relationship between China and North Korea was uh, described as uh, close as, quote, lips to teeth. Mm. And you've got, uh, you've got a situation where the Chinese have uh, a communist government as a neighbor, uh, so th- ideologically probably sort of more or less in the same Mm -hmm. uh, camp. But at the same time, China certainly uh, hopes to maintain within North Korea a certain amount of stability because if there is an implosion uh, in, uh, in North Korea, you would have a situation perhaps of a tsunami of uh, North Korean refugees uh, floating into uh, China. But Mm. the bigger game, the bigger game is what I call the new great game between China and the United States, Uh, both uh, wanting to be leaders, or at least least the U.S. uh, before Trump uh, wanted to continue its global uh, leadership, and you have a situation where theoretically you could have U.S. troops yet again uh, close to the Chinese uh, border if, if, uh, if uh, North Korea imploded. There's a lot of geopolitical uh, issues uh, that, uh, that truly have to be, I think, uh, ad- addressed uh, honestly by China. Uh, and the United States in concert with uh, Japan and uh, and South Korea, and therefore, in in the, in the from the perspective of China, even though they have allowed stronger sanctions through the Security Council and the United Nations, there's only a certain limit to which they will go, and uh, and no further, and. Therefore, uh, for instance, the United States is looking at possibly sanctioning a number of uh, Chinese uh, companies that continue to deal with uh, with North Korea. So what is the objective of North Korea here? Uh, in the end, um, they're poking the bear, whichever one you want to look at. I, I mean, you know, they're surrounded by people who could wipe them out. So what, where's the gain here? Well, I, I'm certainly feel that the the central objective is uh, regime survival you've got a dynasty under right. kim jong un and his father and grandfather so they're creating a threat outside uh, internationally to make it look uh, domestically like they're doing something i think that's part of their uh, calculation and uh, and certainly they want to keep uh, people off off uh, balance right. by being quite aggressive and remember even when now Mr. Rodman is uh, showing up uh, there had been uh, four US citizens that had been uh, recently incarcerated uh, for activity of uh, anti-state activities one apparently has just been released uh, because i think uh, he might be medically he's uh, in a coma. challenged in a coma. Yeah, he's in a coma. Yes, yes. But there are still three U.S. Uh, citizens there. Mm. 
in jail. Is there? Do you think there's a greater chance of an implosion within North Korea due to those, uh, you know, instability or the regime trying to hang on, or aggression from the from North Korea? Is there more chance that they'll implode inward as opposed to outward? Well, it's. Uh, it's truly hard to say because uh, I don't think anybody really, really from the outside knows what is going on in there. But it would seem to me that uh, the possibility of implosion increases as information uh, flows into the country and ordinary North Korean citizens, some of whom can now uh, use cell phones, uh, for instance, uh, find out more about the outside world and find out how ultimately how uh, desperate the North Korean uh, hmm. economic situation is, except, of course, for the privileged uh, people, uh, the military and what I call the nomenclatura, uh, who are the privileged people around Kim Jong-un who live in, uh, in Pyongyang and certainly have uh, access to much better food and luxuries than uh, than the poor people who seem to be starving elsewhere in so, the country. So l- last question, the whole Dennis Rodman thing, how does this complicate the issue? How does this help hurt? What's the purpose here? Well, uh, first of all, uh, Rodman has been uh, a visitor to yep. North Korea several times, mm-hmm. and from uh, photographs, uh, he seems to have uh, a good relationship uh, with uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, apparently, President Trump has in the past uh, praised uh, his uh, visits to, uh, to North Korea, and uh, if you're talking uh, from a U.S. point of view of maximum pressure and engagement, perhaps this is an opportunity to, to engage uh, very, very uh, informally. And uh, Mr. Rodman apparently has said that uh, he's, uh, he's trying to just uh, to open a door uh, so we'll see if that. Really how happens. ironic! How ironic is this that he's the only one that has talked to Kim Jong Un? Though I mean, it's bizarre. is this the new U.S. secret weapon here? Uh, it, I mean, it's it, it's unbelievable. Well, you know, it's uh, it could very well be. One has to try every possibility. Quite frankly, in the in the 1970s, uh, the U.S. and China played ping pong diplomacy. Yeah. So maybe now we can have basketball uh, diplomacy. Anything that really gets uh, gets a measure of. Um, of uh, perhaps informal discussions. There were supposed to be uh, what are called track two uh, discussions of ex-bureaucrats on the American side talking to North Koreans, uh, possibly in New York a while back, but that has, uh, that has fallen by the wayside. So this might be an opportunity. I don't think, I doubt very much if there are any specific uh, direct messages from President Trump, but uh, wait for his uh, tweets. (laughs) Exactly. Who knows? Uh, Will U.S. officials want to talk to Rodman when he returns? I mean, isn't that just common sense? It is common sense, and I do not know whether he, uh, Mr. Rodman, had been uh, debriefed or talked to U.S. officials after his previous uh, trips. I am sure that uh, 
that uh, American officials will want to talk uh, to him. But there's a delicate balance there, too. Presumably, he doesn't want to jeopardize his personal friendship with Kim Jong-un, so he will have to be quite discreet if he even talks uh, to U.S. Uh, officials. But the possibility, I, I'm sure, is there. Marius Grinius has been with us, former Canadian ambassador to Vietnam, North and South Korea, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Fascinating. Thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's bring in Simon Palomar, Research Assistant, Center for International Governance Innovation, and he is with us now. Hello, Simon. How are you today? Hi, I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, amazing in this tension-filled world that we uh, are operating in. Uh, Dennis Rodman could be the secret weapon in all of this. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Well, part of me just kind of suspects that he was getting sick of all these comparisons of the 2017 Golden State Warriors and the '96 <laughs> Chicago Bulls, and he had to he had to remind everybody, uh, you know, about that dynasty. Um, in all seriousness, I'm not sure that it, it is much of anything. There are, of course, but he's some, the uh, only one talking to Kim Jong Un. How can that be in some way not valuable? He's the, only, he's, the he's probably the most direct line the Americans might have right now, but that's partially out of choice, uh, out of the choice of the American government. Um, Kim Jong-un would like little more than to have uh, bilateral talks with the U.S. government, and it's important, um, at least in the point of view of the State Department, Department of Defense, that they don't give the North Korean government those talks until they see, they see some capitulation, or at least some movement on a on a few key issues. So there are some rumors that the Trump administration has been looking at a back channel to Pyongyang for a while now, something that's deniable, something that is quiet, something that if it goes, you know, pear shaped, that they can brush it aside and, you know, Hmm. ignore that it ever happened. Is it possible that Dennis Rodman is part of that, that, uh, that back channel? Uh, Given this administration, it would be, um, I think, foolish for me to completely discount the possibility. But, you know, right now, the United States, they have to balance, they have to balance not only uh, the relations with North Korea, they have to deal with a new South Korean government, which is far more open to talking with the North Koreans on an official basis than the U.S. is. And... It seems that the Trump administration has a number of issues that they want to hash out with China, and as as we've talked about before, you know, it's it's my suspicion, suspicion of many others, that ultimately the Chinese will weigh in on North Korea and get them to move on a few issues when the Chinese government is good and ready. So it's not it's not impossible that this is this. Rodman trip is happening with a little bit of uh, official sanction from the White House, very very quietly. But I, I just wouldn't. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to assume that uh, it's a slam dunk. How does the rest of the world view this? I think it's quite amusing, really. I mean, think uh, about it: Donald Trump, Kim Jong Un, Dennis Rodman. I mean, you know, they're all. I mean, it, life it, it certainly sounds like something you'd hear about in Hollywood, not in Washington. I mean, there there is there is an element of that. I mean, uh, Donald Trump, as as you're all aware, is profoundly unpopular both in the United States and outside of the United States. He is still, uh, unfortunately, you know, five five months into the administration, running it like a 
more like a television program than a government. Uh, Rodman, I think, is probably a little bit of a less-known commodity in the rest of the world, except to basketball fans. Kim Jong-un, of course, is uh, is well-known. Um, my concern is that this to foreign policy professionals and other governments in uh, consultancies and whatnot around the world, they look this look at this, and if this were uh, a very quiet, uh, you know, uh, back channel to North Korea, it would it would underscore what I think a lot of people right now see as like a lack of seriousness and a lack of professionalism in this U.S. government. Now, it doesn't mean that these sorts of back channels and these sorts of unorthodox diplomatic maneuvers, if this is one, haven't worked in the past, but it certainly does have the appeal uh, appearance more of spectacle than of than of uh, a, a serious attempt to resolve or at least manage some of the very high stakes issues between Washington and Pyongyang. Uh, obviously, this has been stressed that it is a private visit. Uh, that being said, um, do, do U.S. officials talk to Rodman before or after he comes back from these trips? Do they want to know what's going on simply because he's the only one that's talking to the leader? Well, like Marius said, and he's a tough act to follow, it, it's, it's not clear. If, if indeed this is purely a private Trip. And Americans do go on private trips. To, what about the timing, though? I mean, North man. Korea. He... The, the timing, I mean, the, the timing is no coincidence. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear. Uh, Dennis Rodman, if anything, is is excellent at media relations, excellent at generating hype, excellent at drawing attention. And his decision to to go to, to North Korea only a couple months after um President Trump rattled his saber at the the country. I mean, it's no coincidence. Whether or not, though, uh, if this is indeed a fully private initiative, whether or not the U.S. government will get a a good proper debriefing with them, it, it's hard to say. And it's also, and this is this is not to disparage Mr. Rodman, but he may not necessarily be looking out for the things that uh, the U.S. government is interested in when he when he is in fact over there. So the Pentagon chief declares North Korea is the new uh, top threat to U.S. security. Uh, Again, then you add Dennis Rodman into the mix. Uh, Where does that leave us? How much of a threat is there? I suspect that the threat is not significantly increased. But when you when if you I assume you're referring to General uh, James Mattis's testimony before the Senate. I mean, what the U.S. Department of Defense is probably seeing and people in the State Department are seeing is that North Korea, the United States has no clear playbook about how to manage North Korea. Things haven't changed dramatically in the last several months, but what instead you see is, you know, the United States deploys missile defenses, North Korea continues its rhetoric, continues its missile tests. Uh, South Korea elects a new president who is more willing to... uh, reach out to North Korea, and you see no reciprocity from North Korea, is that no matter what the U.S. or its allies do to change tax, to to increase pressure, the North Korean, uh, you know, the, the war drums, they keep pounding them, they keep testing missiles, they keep on hinting at another nuclear test, and that the current track of policy doesn't seem to shift the North Koreans off this very particular Past. Does that mean things are getting worse? Not necessarily, but it means that current policy is, you know, perhaps 
sustainable, but it's not getting the U.S. where they want to be. Where does this, how does this play in North Korea? And we have no way of knowing this, of course, but how does this play in North Korea when uh, obviously Kim Jong-un tries to set up domestically, the rest of the world is out to get us, that's why he has or how he has what he has, and then all of a sudden you bring over an American sports celebrity. How does that play over there? Well, like you said, it's really impossible to know, but an important thing to remember about uh the Kim family, whether we go back to, you know, uh, two generations to the, you know, the founder of uh, North Korea or Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il, is that they, the Kim family and the Communist Party of North Korea have always been very good at depicting, you're right, one, the, the world is hostile to to North Korea, that they just simply can't accept that the, the North Korean people have chosen their own path in the world and they won't be shaken from it. But when they make those arguments, they're very, they're very careful to often vilify uh, governments more than people. And they do, they do vilify people, right? They do vilify, you know, uh, entire nations, you know, that, that the, the average Joe American is hostile as well. But they really do emphasize governments because that allows them to always, you know, if they get a visitor from another country, a celebrity who wants to do a little bit of informal diplomacy themselves, it allows them to, to remind the North Korean people that, look, our, our leadership, they really are admired hmm. by, you know, yeah. the free thinkers in the world, by the good people in the world, but those who can see through the lies, etc. Soviet leadership likes to play the same game during the Cold War, mm-hmm. um, pointing out all the social ills in America, you know, racial tensions, uh, poverty in Appalachia, for example, and say, you know, look, there are Americans who see through the lies of their government and realize how great the USSR is. There are Americans who see through the lies and realize how great the Kims are. Right. All right. Simon Palomar has been with us, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A new Ipsos poll says that uh, religion in Canada has done more harm than good. Uh, This from Global News, just over half of Canadian uh, respondents say they believe religion does more harm than good in the world, according to a new survey. Uh, The Ipsos poll conducted for Global News showed that 51% of respondents agreed with the above statement. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Gary Derenfeld is with us, social worker, yoursocialworker.com, and he is with us now. Hello, Gary. How are you today? Boy, aren't you opening up a uh, real keg of uh, black powder here, eh? That's the job. That's the job. <laughs> Thanks for sucking me in at this point. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And now I just get to ask the questions, and you have to answer them. Let's go. <laughs> um, why do Canadians feel this way, do you think? I got news for you. This isn't a a new feeling. Uh, When we look at our residential school system in Canada, most of them were were religious run. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we certainly learned about a whole bunch of atrocities perpetrated against Indigenous peoples here in Canada through the religious run schools. Uh, We also hear, you know, through the media about um, uh, sexual abuse perpetrated uh, through priests and the Catholic community. So, you know, we're inundated about the uh, bad deeds done in the name of faith and religion. 
So people are looking at that and saying, um, is this really working? Is it really helping? Is this one of those stories where we hear all the bad news and none of the good news? You know, uh, I think that's a really uh, good point, Scott. Uh, good news, you, you know, you know I do a lot of work in the media. And, I, you know, I had one uh, um, uh, producer say to me once, look, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. And if we're talking about anything else and something else comes on that's gorier, that's what we're going with. And that is the 24-hour, 365-day news cycle. That is what keeps people uh, tied to the set, and that's what the advertisers, who's paying for that time, want to see. So, yeah, that does influence and skew our thinking. Uh, when I was, and I think we're roughly about the same age, when I was growing up in the 70s and, and 80s, and, and this was probably more the 70s, uh, it seemed that Canada was becoming more secular, that religion was slowly making its way out of society, certainly out of the school system. When I started you know, in school, I remember singing O Canada and reading the Lord's Prayer every morning. Uh, it wasn't long after I started. That was gone. Uh, now it seems that that is all coming back. What's changed? Uh, well, I, you know, I think we are seeing a more secular society. Um, Quebec used to lead uh, Canada in terms of um, uh, persons of faith, particularly Catholic. Now Quebec is leading Canada in terms of secularism. How do you explain that? Yeah, well, I, I think um, people are being disenchanted at, at a higher level with what religious has, religion has to offer and I think they're seeing that they don't need to be part of an organized faith to be a good person. And That's a know, very valid point, Gary. Yeah, and so I can be a good person regardless of faith, uh, whether I'm part of one, not part of one, or which faith. And I, you know, myself personally, I try to live by the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have done upon yourself, and uh, I'm Jewish, yet I'm not practicing of my faith. So, so I think people are moving away from, is there a life after death to which I have to aspire to through um, particular beliefs? They're moving away from that to thinking about, how am I today with my fellow man uh, or woman? It, does it appear that it is always divisive as opposed to inclusionary. It, it seems whenever we talk about it, it's in a divisive context in some way. Yeah, and, and I think part of the problem with that is because we keep using the word tolerance. We keep talking about tolerance. To me, tolerance is actually uh, a dirty word, Scott. Tolerance implies that I'm right, but I'm going to put up with you. Right. Uh, versus acceptance. Acceptance says... I am not going to be so egotistical as to consider myself necessarily right, and therefore I accept your beliefs too. I may practice mine, they may be similar or different, but I accept yours as well. And that's a very different attitude. And these days we get into this, uh, we call it binary thinking, black and white, yes or no. You're either of this faith or not of this faith. You either are good or you are bad. And, and it's that binary thinking, you know, religion is good, religion is bad. It's that binary thinking that kind of creates a lot of problems. Um, we have to be more flexible in our thinking. So religion is neither good nor bad. Religion kind of just is. Then it's a matter of how we adopt it, how we use it, uh, how we share it, um, how we live it. 
But, you know, you brought up earlier uh, the issue of residential schools uh, in Canada, and, and we certainly know uh, the news that that has created and, and the attention that is now being paid to this, finally. Um, but it seems that it's the government that's shouldering all the blame. And as you mentioned, it was the church that actually performed the assaults. Right. So government is, but yet we're but we're we're defending the church, it seems, and we're blaming the government. Yeah, I don't know that we're actually defending the church. Uh, it's certainly been very quiet in all of this. Put it this way: most of the media attention goes to the government rather than the churches that that were a part of this. Yeah, as if we have to, as if the government has to shoulder the responsibility and they're not. Uh, the, I think they both do. The government sets the policy by which the, Correct, the yeah. church took action. So, uh, in terms of being in charge of the policy, the government shoulders that. In terms of what that being said, I'm sure the government didn't say your mission is to go out and abuse Aboriginals. I agree with you. But having said that, the mission was to, in part, beat the yeah. uh, Indian or the native out of the Indian, or however that was framed. Like really nasty language when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you're right. The the policies were enacted by by different groups, many of them religious, of course, and uh, they do shoulder some of the blame. And there have been um, lawsuits against religious groups. I think most notably. Um, uh, to my mind, in Newfoundland, um, and it is something to be shared. So, so you know, these days, though, if I can shift the conversation, so much of this conversation is the result of uh, radical Islam yep. and radical uh, Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so whenever we get into these um, radical um, extremes. E- extremes of faith, uh, Concern for the person seems to go out the window in favor of um, advocating a belief system regardless of the well-being of all individuals. So how do we move forward with this? What do religious organizations need to do? Well, you know, uh, quit talking tolerance and start talking acceptance. Hmm. Um, So, you know, if we believe in brotherly love, uh, we have to walk that walk and not just uh, talk it. And that means opening doors rather than closing doors, letting people in instead of saying, um, you know, only you and not the other. We have to be um, uh, more open to people who are different from us and learn, you know, in getting to know them, then we can become comfortable. Many feel that religion is taking us backwards. What are your thoughts? I don't even know what that means. Taking what what is taking us backwards? Well, I you know I guess people view Ontario as a pretty progressive province. Uh, the way it deals with uh, humanitarian issues, the way it de- deals with uh, social issues of all kinds. Uh, now we're hearing uh, more and more. Uh, for example, the sex ed curriculum. Uh, you know, the government wanted to teach what the kids are learning on the internet and 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 explain all that to them various religious groups pulling back saying no it's that's not what it's about blah 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 and a lot of people are thinking that you know we're a very progressive province we don't want to go backwards with this when it comes so, to things like homosexuality whatever you want to talk about so certainly there is a remarkable influence by those whose beliefs are what we would call very right of right whether it's the Christian uh, group, whether it's the Jewish group like myself, whether it's uh, Muslim. And so from that perspective, they are trying to be very influential 
in terms of uh, social policy, social services, um, the definition of family, women's rights, and there is a concern amongst many others about the influence of that more extreme right-wing thinking on politics. Uh, those who are of more right-wing conservative thinking, uh, social conservative thinking, have learned over the last several decades that uh, getting into politics is a good way to influence all these policies and, and the, our, our social fabric. And so they've also learned to speak uh, in code. Uh, they, they talk, uh, you, you know, we have some of our conservative leaders saying, you know, we're not going to open up debates on issues of homosexuality, issues of abortion, uh, women's rights. We're not going to open that up as a party, yet they leave the door open for their backbenchers to propose legislation so that they can stand on the shoulders, if you will, of the backbenchers and say, look, it's not us, the party, it's actually that backbencher advancing these things. So there is a concern amongst those who are not, you know, right-wing, uh, right-conservative-leaning. There is concern about that more subtle uh, underground influence that can roll back what they would consider, the liberal side or uh, left-leaning uh, folks, roll back what they consider to be more appropriate social and family policy. Do, uh, it seemed decades ago there was a definite, and this is an American term, the separation of church and state, but it seemed that that's the direction that we were moving in, that, that, that you know, you, you couldn't let one interfere with the other. Do many feel that's going backwards? I, you know, it's not like I have the pulse of the nation and mm-hmm. have done polls on this to answer that question. But from a personal perspective, it does feel as if these things are going backwards, that some of the rights that have been achieved for women, for mm-hmm. children, for persons of different uh, uh, genders and, and uh, gender orientation and, and, and uh, sexual preferences, it does seem like there is a renewed assault on people who are different from the mainstream. Mm-hmm. And uh, personally, I find that very disconcerting. I I find that more than disconcerting. I find that scary. We're seeing the politics of division south of the border uh, through Trump. And absolutely, those influences have well uh, come come north of the 49th parallel and are alive and well, unfortunately, in Canada, too. Do people view religious people differently? than they did 30, 40 years ago? You know... Do people ever view them? Did people ever view them differently? <laughs> I am starting to see that among... Because, I, you know, as a, as, a non, as a non-religious guy, I always did. I always thought that, you know, that people who are more religious than I am, considering I'm not at all, I, I had a greater respect for, and I expected a higher level of... Um, of, of existence for them. Um, I enjoy going to other people's churches and listening to what is going on, uh, although I'm not involved in my own uh, uh, scenario. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, do we think differently about people who are religious than we did 40 years ago? And, I, and you I know, and, so. and people are people, so we can't yeah. put them on a pedestal whether they are or not. But that's right. what I've learned. 
yeah, now when we hear that somebody is a person of faith, we're more concerned, um, do they hold very right-of-right beliefs that are exclusionary and not accepting of others? And I don't know that that was as great a concern 5, 10, 15, 30 years ago. Or even a view that's non-academic. That's right, as it is a concern uh, today. And I I want to tell you something. You know, we're having this conversation. Uh, I am by no means anti-faith, anti-religion. I, you know, this past year alone, I've spoken in um, probably a dozen public school systems and and at least uh, a dozen uh, Catholic school uh, systems. And I quite like... uh, faith, morals, values, um, being demonstrated and taught uh, specifically to children. I, you know, I didn't mind something like the Lord's Prayer, mm-hmm. um, because it helps people to think beyond themselves. Okay? Whether or not you believe in God, up to you, but at least it helps people to get out of um, that sense of narcissism, that the world only revolves around me, and all that is important is whatever affects me. Well, it's like the Ten Commandments, good rules to live by. Uh, That being said, you don't have to be religious to be a good person. Uh, There you go. But I do like that we have um, discussions, and I do like the Catholic system, uh, that it brings those discussions on morals and faith into the classroom. I like that there are um, assignments for students to, to consider uh, and and live morals and values. I you know in many ways I think the world would be a lot. Better so why can't we t- why can't we te- why can't we teach people all of that without bringing religion into it? I mean can't, we can. I mean the difference between uh, you, you know uh, a Bible and a self help book is 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 the dialogue really. It's 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 just the way it, it's it's presented. Is it not? So in some uh, ways. So we, we Scott. Of course we can. But in many ways, we don't. And so, you know, we mm. tend to see, well, as soon as you talk faith and, and religion, we're going to throw everything, you know, it's that binary thinking, yeah. all or none. Yeah. And so I would love it if in the public school system, we could have discussion of morals and values and doing good by others mm-hmm. so that it doesn't have to be necessarily faith-based, but it does have to um, demonstrate uh, attitudes morals and values and how we adopt them and which tend to uh, promote getting along with others and which don't, so, so that we are better informed and um, become uh, better citizens. Uh, this was uh, 51% of Canadians uh, feel that it does more harm than good religion, 62% of uh, Quebecers. Uh, back in 2011, it was down at 44%. Do you think this is going to keep increasing? What is the future of religion in North America? Well, you know, we have a new uh, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. He is a, a person for whom his faith is strong. His faith aside, when we look at what he would vote for or not vote for in the House of Commons, he does, um, his faith does seem to influence his voting decisions. And so I think we're going to see more divisiveness, not less, as we move forward. I think it will be around these themes of uh, faith and religion. And uh, I think we're going to get more of that binary thinking, uh, which promotes exclusion rather than inclusion. 
So I am concerned about the state of um, our world today around these lines. Were we excluding back in the 70s when we were moving more to a secular school system and a secular um, uh, society? You know, uh, some would argue, yeah, that by moving to a more secular society, you're excluding those of faith. But I don't know that that is the case. I think those who are moving to a more secular society were saying, practice your faith, Mm -hmm. believe in your faith. Just don't put your beliefs on us, um, you know, in terms of the the family and who does what and, and who can be called a who. So, so... It was with the view of keeping that church and state separate. Trudeau said it very well. I, I mean, the, the original, Pierre Elliott, uh, you know, there's no place for us in the bedrooms of the nation. Mm-hmm. And so that was a strong statement about the separation of church and state. Gary Dierenfeld has been with his social worker, YourSocialWorker.com, to find out more. A new Ipsos poll says that religion in Canada has done more harm than good. Gary, thank you for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. People should just be like you. Be nice. Just mellow out. Take a deep breath and hug one another. There you go. Love you, man. Love you, Gary. Have a good one. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.